Before I start the lecture today, I want to say something. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to get through it. I can hardly get through it. But always in the background in this church are some incredible people. And, and Dirk Fast was somebody that I relied on so much, I can't even begin to tell you. I, I didn't need him to come. He worked on Sundays. I just needed him to be in the background somewhere. I just needed him to be there, because if he was, then I was stronger. He was one of the mighty men of this church, and um, to me, it is, it's devastating. But let me just keep going here a second. Dirk Fast is, not past tense, present tense, Dirk Fast is, and always will be, and because all of us, the saved, are amazingly and wonderfully made, we are two components, if you will, some would say three, but I combine two into one. We are soul and spirit, and we are body. God calls us nefesh kaya for a reason. It's a Jewish word that means living soul. We are living souls. We are immortal beings. We cannot pass away. And so it is inappropriate to refer to a human being as was. Occasionally we will make the mistake. Dirk is and always will be. And the only thing that gets you through something like this is a firm understanding of how you are awesomely and wonderfully made. What the relationship between the soul and the spirit and the body is. The body can die. The soul and the spirit survives physical death. In Dirk's case, he is accompanied immediately to the third heaven where he sees in the throne room of God, God himself, Jesus Christ on that throne, the creator of all things. That, I imagine, was an incredible experience, an incredible trip. And all of us, unless there is a coming soon, and of course I'm rooting for that, as you know, that's my retirement plan. All of us will have that same incredible experience. And... uh, If I keep going, I will not go any further. So I'll stop there. But if you have any questions about any of this, please see me. I have a responsibility uh, to one of the mighty men of this church. He knows things that we have no imagination of, and he's depending on us now, especially me. I have to make sure... I tell what has happened. Okay, enough. Ah, Here we go. October 31st, 2010, lecture discussion number 21 on the Book of Romans. Now, this is my special Halloween sermon. For those of you who know me, you know that's not even remotely possible. This is not a special sermon of any means. I have to give you the visitor disclaimer. Let me read it again because we have a pretty wide Internet following now, more of them than of us. October 31st, 2010, lecture discussion number 21 on the book of Romans. That means there's been 20 of them, and I see a lot of you here today that I don't normally see. You've missed 20 lectures. How are you going to do on the exam? Not so good. Do we give exams here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. Pretty scary to the visitors, especially that part where we put our arms around, we hit them with a bright light, and we sing silly songs to them while we're fumbling for their wallets. That's okay. We don't do that. We think about it. We'd like to do it just once. I've always wanted to have signs out there that says the bigger tithers park closer to the building. Sorry about you. But I've never done it, never had the courage. Anyway, you're not going to know what I'm doing here today. Twenty sermons that you have missed. And over the past couple of weeks, we have been going over Second Samuel 21. We've accumulated a lot of material. 
And the goal is, of course, to return. I said this is a Roman study, and it is, but you cannot understand Romans unless you understand the Gibeonites. You cannot understand Romans unless you understand Habakkuk or Habakkuk 2.4. You cannot understand the book of Romans without a fundamental understanding of the Old Testament, specifically the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision. Now, if you're new here, boy, gone. Uh, it is perfectly acceptable to fall asleep during the sermon. It absolutely is. I do it at least once a month. And that's why, again, we don't let you eat first. But I'm going to do my best to try to get you through it. I knew you might be here today. All of this is so that you can understand a book in the New Testament called the Book of Romans. That's what we're doing. And we have spent, as I said, this is the third week on Second Samuel, and I'm going to try to fit everything together. We find ourselves uh, at Second Samuel 21 because it's the third stage of the Gibeonite saga. The Gibeonites were murdered in Genesis 34. They were attempted to be destroyed in Joshua 9, and they are being destroyed or consumed again in Second Samuel 21. And God comes. And there's incredible symbolism and very significant and complex lessons in view here. And we're trying to understand it so that we can figure out circumcision, why the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision, what it means, so that we can understand the book of Romans, which is all about circumcision. So there's your visitor-friendly sermon, huh? I went to church. I got a lecture on circumcision. I got some Kentucky Fried Chicken. Think of you know you got to think about that. But the purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose of it, the fundamental reason there is an Old Testament, is to testify of Jesus Christ. He says so. I am on every page, John five thirty nine. I am in every verse of the Old Testament. You search the Scriptures; they testify of me. If you do not find Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, you have missed the very point of it. He is Creator God and the Author of it. He is the Word. He says so over and over. And the church today, unfortunately, has misplaced the deity of Christ. We don't seem to understand it very much, so we set it aside. That won't happen here. So we're going to look for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament again today. His person and or his redemptive work and or his judgment. So his mercy and his judgment. His love and his holiness. And so we are going to find Jesus Christ in 2 Samuel 21. And we're going to evaluate everything in it with that in mind. Now, I've read it for the last two weeks. I can't read it today. It'll just, it'll, it'll take too long again. The last thing I want to do is go too long today. So I'm going to break it down. And if you want, please open your Bibles. If you would like a Bible, uh, we'll get one for you. Raise your hand and I'll force somebody to bring you one. There's somebody who needs, there's two, three. Four, start handing out textbooks. It's empty. Okay, we're coming. Steal them from the other church. They'll never know. Oh, it's it's got to be for me. It isn't for me. There's the one man in the congregation that can answer his phone here, by the way. Uh, if you need to, search downstairs for them in the bookcases. Lord, Lord, do you have any idea where any might be? Raise your hands again if you need one. And we'll start looking for you. Okay, again, we're going to try to find Christ in 2 Samuel 21. We're going to ask all the time, how is this verse, how is this passage, how is this section a portrait of Jesus Christ? Why is it there? Is it there? And if Christ is being presented, and he will be, then you ask the other obvious question, whatever you find Christ, the Christ, Jesus the Christ, uh, then you also look for the Antichrist, because they have a tendency to be likewise presented. In other words, I will present the Christ, and the Antichrist will also be in the Old Testament. And that's especially relevant today because of where we've been, Joshua 9 and 10. 
For those of you who missed Joshua 9 and 10, we saw Joshua is the type of Christ. He literally has the same Hebrew name, same Hebrew spelling. Okay, here they come. Very good. My reconnaissance team. How much did we come back with? Ten. Good. Good. Let's hand out four and keep six. And anyone else need a textbook? Here we go. Right here, please. If you haven't noticed by now, this is a lecture, a teaching style lecture and not your typical sermon. But anyway, the Antichrist is almost always present when Christ is present in the Old Testament, also true in the New Testament, by the way. And again, Joshua 9 and 10, Joshua, whose name is literally the same, Yeshua, just as Christ. We saw him as a type of Christ with respect to the Gibeonites. He saved the Gibeonites who had turned themselves over to him. When they were attacked, and we, they were attacked by the king of Jerusalem who surrounded them for the uh, purpose of destroying and eliminating them. That, by the way, is one of the great uh, prophecies in, in Revelation, is that at some point a man, a king, uh, specifically a king who uh, declares himself the king of Israel, will surround the Jews, the remnant of the Jews, in an attempt to exterminate them because he understands what their purpose is. So, that's happening in Joshua 9 and 10, and this is connected to Joshua 9 and 10, so I think we're going to be able to find that just as I have the Christ, I have the Antichrist here. And I do, right off the bat, if you remember, I have another king of Jerusalem, in this case, King Saul, this beautiful, tall, powerful man, the tallest of all men, the most beautiful of all men in Israel, he attempted to exterminate the Gibeonites, consuming them. That was his goal. But God stopped him. So that's what we're doing today. Now we're going to go through it and figure out how Christ is portrayed. So go ahead and open to 2 Samuel 21. I'm not going to read it as I said. I'm going to pick it apart today. So we'll uh, put a list on the board. And while I'm doing that, um, we're going to try to figure out how it all fits together. What part is Christ? What part is something else? What is being taught here? And you can actually follow my outline along as I do this. You'll see where it comes from if you'll read as I go. So who is portraying Christ here? It starts out in verse 10, 2110. Am I right? No, I'm Second Samuel, sorry. Second Samuel 21, 1, you see David immediately. Did I say First Samuel? Good, I said Second Samuel. There was a famine in the days of David. So immediately we ask ourselves, is David in this passage, is he going to portray Christ? And then the obvious question, what is it that David does that is a prophecy or a picture of Jesus Christ? So then off we go, trying to figure it all out. Okay, so here we go. We're going to make another list. And I hope you can all see the board. If you can't, let me see. Everybody see? Okay, here we go. Follow along. I'm going to start with AA because I made a mistake and left something out in my first time through. I start with a three-year famine. That's pretty extraordinary. Ask yourself, why is there a famine? Why is it three years? And God has sent this famine. This is God's intervening on behalf of the Gibeonites who always seem to be killed by people, especially the Jews. And he sent a three-year famine. And David has allowed it to go all three years. So that is really puzzling. Why would he do that? Then Saul is brought up. Saul is, is the reason for the famine. Saul and his bloodthirsty house. So Saul and his house, which is his family. Thirsty. Got it. Saul and his bloodthirsty house tried to exterminate and consume the Gibeonites. And David went to God and said, why do we have a three-year famine? And God said, because of Saul, he's killing my Gibeonites. And he is not to do that. So you see the Gibeonites finally show up in the text as God explains the purpose of the famine. And then uh, they are a remnant, which is very important. That begins to tell you 
uh, what's going on. When you see the word remnant, very powerful in Scripture. And Saul is doing it, it says in there, if you read along a little further, because of his zeal for Israel. Why does he have zeal for Israel is an immediate question that should come off and pop you right in the forehead. Why doesn't he have a zeal for God? Why isn't he trying to find out what God wants? Instead, he has a zeal for Israel. And because of that zeal for Israel, by the way, that's a doctrinal question. It's because... He has the wrong, complete doctrine of salvation. In other words, he's the absolute opposite of God when it comes to salvation. Because of that zeal, he's killing the Gibeonites who have the right understanding of salvation. So David wants to know, how can I atone for this? You see the atonement. How can I atone? How can I return the blessing? And I know that's hard to see down there at the bottom, but pretend you can see it. How can the inheritance return? And the Debianites answer, they say, no silver, no gold. You cannot buy the blessing. You cannot buy the inheritance. You cannot purchase. You cannot earn. You cannot in any fashion work your way to heaven. It's not possible. Because essentially what you're doing is you're getting a blood transfusion. I explained this just recently. I'm put, throwing it in here for the sake of visitors that I won't identify. And I won't look at them. So you'll narrow it down pretty fast, won't you? It's a blood transfusion, as you know. You have to have blood. We, our blood is corrupt and it is dying and it is uh, failing. And we are failing physically. If you don't think that's the truth, I'll show you a picture of me a couple of weeks ago. It's obvious that we are going fast, some of us. And well, I need blood and I need flesh. And that, of course, is your communion service, isn't it? That's the purpose of that communion service, is to demonstrate to you that you need blood. And you need perfect blood. You need sinless blood. You need blood that's living. You don't have that. You have blood that's dying. And you need flesh. And you don't have that either. Your blood and flesh are dying. You need a blood and flesh transfusion. Where are you going to get blood and flesh? And you've got to have some that's not corrupted. Where are you going to get that? You need human blood. You need human flesh. It's very important that God become human. You see why? Because he is the source of blood and flesh. How are you going to buy it? How much it cost? Perfect blood. How much do you need? Very teensy tiny bit. Who needs it? How many human beings are at the store trying to buy it? Hope they're not trying to buy it. That would be foolish of them. Billions of people need it. So we have to have an infinite supply of it, and it has to be living, and it has to be perfect, and it has to be sinless, and it has to go on forever. There's only one source of that. There's only one way it could happen, and that is God himself, creator God, has to add humanity to himself. That, of course, is the holy thing of Luke, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay? They don't want any silver, they don't want any gold, and they don't want him to kill anybody for them. Don't kill. In other words, he does it. they don't want war with Israel. They don't want Israelites killed, um, just helter-skelter. And he asked them this wonderful question, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you say, I will do. And that you should immediately, let me, I'm not going to be able to fit it on there. I will, what's the last word? Do. Let me get rid of the will. I what? I do. Why does he answer that way? That is right out of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. That is right out of every Gentile, if you will, relationship at the altar. I have heard I do hundreds of times now. It's a marriage ceremonial step. Whatever you say, I will do. That is word for word almost of what Jerusalem said to God when he said to them, you will keep my commandments. And they said, whatever you say, I will do. How'd they do keeping the commandments, by the way? How you do it? Not so good. What in the world are they saying that for? They had no possibility of keeping those commandments, the Torah. Failed horribly. So why did they say it? 
I call it many, many times, perhaps the dumbest thing ever said in the Bible is Jerusalem, I'm sorry, Israel at Mount Sinai when Moses is bringing down the Ten Commandments. That is a marriage ceremony, by the way. I have the, I have the wife of Is, uh, that is Israel being escorted by the two witnesses saying, I do or I will do to God. So understand Mount Sinai is a wedding ceremony. But anyway, you see it repeated here. David says the same thing. Immediately makes you wonder, why does he repeat those words from that wedding ceremony that occurred on what feast day, by the way? That's right, the feast day of Shavuot. Know your feast days. There's seven of them. Things happen on them. But instead, they wanted to deal with the man that consumed and plotted against them. Again, I hope you see the Antichrist reference there, because that is word for word almost exactly what the Antichrist will do to the nation of Israel at the end of the age of the Gentiles. When did the age of the Gentiles start? When did it start? 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar swept through and took out Israel. 586 B.C., we have been in the age of the Gentiles. Every Jewish rabbi today is looking to the end of the age of the Gentiles. Has it ended yet? No, it hasn't ended yet. When does it end? When the one who is consuming and plotting against them at the end of the age of the Gentiles is killed by Christ. And Israel is restored as a nation of priests, its rightful place. That hasn't happened. How far away is that probably? You've got to have a nation of Israel. When have we not had a nation of Israel? We haven't had a nation of Israel for almost 2,000 years. In your lifetime, there's a nation of Israel. You also need a nation of Assyria. We have not had a nation of Assyria, Assyria until when? 732 to now. 732 B.C. to now, we've had no nation of Assyria. What's the nation of Assyria today on the map? Kurdistan. When did it come into being again? Yeah, the Gulf War, huh? Desert, what, storm? I get them confused. In your lifetime, most of you have seen the rebirth of the nation of Israel, the fig tree, and you have seen the rebirth of the nation of Assyria. That's extraordinary. And God says the ones that see the rebirth of the fig tree, that see the rebirth of Assyria, that see these nations, these ancient nations coming back, will witness the rise of the Antichrist and the end of the age of the Gentiles after 2,500 years. By the way, why do we have an age of the Gentiles? How come Israel got... Stripped, if you will, of responsibility. Bad doctrine. What was the bad doctrine? They refused, by the way, to go out into the Gentile world and testify to the Gentiles because they refused. The absolute opposite of what God wanted them to do. So he sent them into the Gentile world whether they wanted to go or not. The disbursement happened again 70 A.D with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay. They're going to, they want to, they, whatever you say, I will do. Okay. We want to deal with the man who's trying to consume us and plotted against us. And we want seven of his descendants hanged. These are the Gibeonites. They want seven hanged. They've almost been completely consumed and exterminated. And they want seven hanged of, uh, of the Saul bloodthirsty house. And David says, I will give them to you. I will give them. I know you can't read my writing. It's okay. Then we have this extraordinary thing that happens next. The One of the mothers, Rizpah, goes out there and says, I'm not going to let the beasts or the birds tear up the bodies of the hanged. Two of them were hers. And it happened at the beginning of the barley harvest. When is the beginning of the barley harvest? It is around the feast day of what? Got to know your feast days. It's early spring, if you will. It's in April. What feast day is that? Yeah, first fruits is correct. It's also Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, right? So at the beginning of the April harvest, 
Rizpah goes out there because her two of her kids are hung and two or, or five others are on the are hanging as well. And she puts on sackcloth, which is a mourning cloth that is also an expression of penitence and submission, repentance, if you will. So she is repentant. She knows her sons are guilty. She knows they tried to kill and exterminate the Gibeonites. She knows they should never have done that. She understands who the Gibeonites represent and what they believe, that they have it absolutely right. And yet Saul wanted to destroy them. She understands that issue. And she's not asking that her sons be cut down and not executed. In fact, she's doing the opposite of that. She is showing that she understands it and agrees with it, with the sackcloth and the ashes. And then she does it until the late rains. Now, some of your Bibles will say it's the late rains, which are October, but it's not. It's the late rains of the first rains, if you will. It's about 60 days. Now, some will say it is October, and it's hard for me to argue with them, but I take the position that the Jewish uh, scholars have, and that's why I'm going here. I figure they know better than me their feast days. But the late rains come from heaven. That should tell you immediately, what are we doing here today? What are we trying to find? What's the object of this list? Find Christ. Where is he? Is he Saul? I also said look for Antichrist. Clearly the one that's consuming the remnant of the nation of Israel is the Antichrist and his bloodthirsty house. Is it David? Probably David. Where else is Christ? You have to find him and find his uh, redemptive work. And she fights off, Rizpah fights off the birds of the air. Fights off the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Why? There are no irrelevant details in Scripture of the earth, if you wish, or the ground. Why is she fighting? First, why is she even out there? Second, why is she fighting off birds and beasts from tearing up the bodies and stripping the bones? How many days she do it? At least 60 days, maybe more. Almost done. And then I have the bones of Saul. If you're still reading, you're still awake. Please try to keep your drool off the neighbor. Okay? And then the bones of Jonathan. And then I have the bones of the hanged. And they have to be buried. And after that, God hears them. It says, God heeds the prayers of the land. After that, so after all of this, first we describe that we have a famine. We just say that Saul is the reason, along with his bloodthirsty house. David goes to the Gibeonites, who are a remnant. They've almost been wiped off the map again by the, by the nation of Israel because of Saul's zeal for the children of Israel, not his zeal for the covenants of God, because God had a covenant with the Gibeonites. And David said, how can I have atonement for what Saul has done because I've got a three-year famine? How can I get the blessing back? How can I get our inheritance back? And they say, we don't want any silver. You can't buy salvation. You can't buy your blessing. You cannot buy your inheritance. It must be given to you. It is an act of grace that takes you immediately to Habakkuk 2.4, doesn't it? Everybody say yes just to make me happy. Thank you. We don't want you. We don't want war. We don't want you wiping people out. And he says, okay, whatever you want, I'll do it. I've got to stop the famine. And they say, we want the descendants of the one that consumed and plotted against us. And we want seven of them delivered. And we're going to hang them. And he says, David does, I will deliver them to you. I will give you what you want. 
and Rizpah, one of the mothers. There's two mothers, by the way. There's also Michael. How come Michael isn't in the story? One of the mothers goes out there and fights off on the barley harvest with sackcloth and, the, and, and she fights off the birds and the beasts until the late rains of the barley harvest come. And then David commands that the bones of Saul and the bones of John and the, uh, Jonathan and the bones of the seven hang be gathered together and buried and then God heeds and ends the famine. There's your second Samuel 21 broken down for you, okay? That's the majority of the elements. There's others, some missing, but I always like to stop at Z. Just a habit of mine. I figure that's enough. I have a soda to keep me going. You don't. You don't. Some of you have a comfortable chair. Most of you are just absolutely brutalized today. I can see it. I always want to film the audience during these lectures. I always do. And I want to show it someday. It's, it's hysterical. It's what keeps me going. You should have seen it when I did high school, kids. I, I, none of them are here today. Well, a couple of you are just closely removed, but I taught high school, as you know, 21 years ago. I had 13, 14, 15-year-olds in my Bible lectures. And what did we do? Those were 90-minute classes. I had 90 minutes. It was great. I was unforgettable. I had a lot more energy then. I used to wear cowboy boots. I was much taller, much more formidable because of that. Anyway, it just reminds me. Looking at you today, I remember them. Don't feel bad. I am doing this because I want to provide a restful evening for you. So you can sleep, I'm saying. There's the majority of the elements. Some are missing, but hopefully I've got enough listed to identify the purpose of what happened. What is God teaching here? What is he teaching Israel? What truth is here hidden? Where is Christ here? What is he teaching us today? Because the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is 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 relevant to us, applicable to us. It teaches us marvelous things. But first, always first, I want you to say, where is Jesus Christ? Where is he? He's all over that list. His person, his redemptive work, everything is there. And most commentators, by the way, have noticed the accepted uh, sacrifice principle that's present. And what I mean by that is I got a famine, right? What do I need to end the famine? What do I got to do to end the famine? I got to hang seven men. I have to sacrifice seven men. The famine is ended after the seven are hanged and executed. And King David delivers the seven into the hands of the Gibeonite for the express purpose as a means of ending the three-year famine. That's why he does it. A long time ago, I wanted to draw a smiley face and stuff like that. I also wanted to put what time is remaining because you know how impolite it is to always be doing this or this now you have phones my favorite comment that I've ever had yeah, yeah you're hiding your phones inside your Bibles just like comic books you, okay I got that I, <laughs> I had a young family or not a young family anymore but a family come and they had a young boy and in the middle of the sermon he always sat over there in the middle of the lecture he'd always look at his mom about 20 minutes to go and say make him stop mom make him stop that's why we dismiss them now why do I say that because he always did that with about 20 minutes to go so what do you now know 20 minutes to go it's not bad that's not bad. Atonement must be made for the curse upon the land to be lifted. That's what David is doing. We're going to hang these guys. They're guilty. They're part of Saul's house that murdered this entire nation, if you will, that is inside the uh, nation or the state of Israel and protected by God. These are the Gibeonites are the theologians now of this 
nation of Israel. They are the ones that understand salvation better than anyone else. They understand God's uh, redemptive uh, purpose because He saved them and they did not deserve to be saved. They They deserved nothing but condemnation and He gave them tremendous mercy and love and grace and they know it. And they know that no one deserved to die more than them. No one deserved condemnation more than them. And they were exempted from it. It was a wonderful, incredible act of mercy and love and grace. And it is a picture of all of us. We all deserve condemnation. How is it that any are saved? That's the question. How is it that any live? All of us filled with corruption. And they got it. So David is going to deliver to these theologians a price that must be paid, a price that God will accept. Then and only then will death by famine through drought in the nation of Israel be ended. Then and only then will blessing and inheritance be restored. Notice I keep saying blessing and inheritance. I hope you pick up on why I keep repeating blessing and inheritance. Why are those two words in the Scripture And hopefully you recognize that pattern, by the way, that a price must be paid, a death must be present, an atonement must be made, blood must be shed in order for the famine to be lifted. That's what? That is exactly the crucifixion redemptive work of Christ given in shadow. So you can quickly circle those items, can't you? Where's Christ? I have a three-year famine, which is a curse. What are we under, by the way? We're cursed. We're dying. We're under the curse of death. We should not die. We were not designed. We were not created to die. But we die. Why? Rejection of God and rebellion against God. We're cursed. We need that curse lifted. We need atonement so that the blessing of eternal life can be given. We want in sonship and inheritance. We're the sons of the King. We're the sons of the Creator God. Our inheritance is at stake here. And seven are hanged. Christ hung from a tree, Galatians 3.13. And God accepted the sacrifice. You see, the acceptance of the sacrifice is so important. I have to have a sacrifice that's like what has What has in fact rejected or been cursed? I'm a human being. I need a human to be sacrificed for me that can take the sacrifice or can take the curse off of me and be accepted by God. I have to have a sinless, perfect person. Who's that? Has to be God Himself. Again, that's the reason that He added humanity. See, those are the obvious characteristics. There's your first time you find Christ. Those are the obvious characteristics of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the redemptive work of Christ, who hung from a cross. And because he did, the curse of death is lifted. Atonement for our sins is made. Inheritance of everlasting life is given. The blessing of God is restored and our communion with him is restored because the sacrifice of Christ is accepted. That is almost line for line exactly 2 Samuel 21. So there is your first time you find Christ. And I hesitate to say this, but that's really the low-hanging fruit in this passage. You never want to say that, by the way, about the redemptive work of Christ, but that is the easy ones. That's the clear and easily discerned. But only those who seek to find Jesus Christ on every page find those. There's more to be found, obviously. Many more questions explode out of this amazing chapter. Why did he hang seven? Why seven? I would love to take questions from the floor, but I'm running out of time. Is it okay to raise your hand and ask me questions? Absolutely. Is it smart? Depends. Most of the time I do it. It's usually the best part of the sermon next to the soda. And yes, I chew ice. Does it annoy the people that listen to me on the Internet? Oh, yeah. Is that, is that a problem for me? <laughs> no. They should come. 
And if they don't come, they should at least send donuts, which they don't do. I know you're out there, Internet people. I'll exempt the people in China, but I know there's some people that could easily send donuts. That's begging, I know, but it's okay. Why are there seven hanged? Why seven? Why not hang one? Why not hang two? Why not hang three? Why seven? There's got to be something in those seven. Why he picked seven? Seven is a tribulational number. It is the omnipresent number in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible, right? That it, so I have seven of them. A revelation, tribulational um, composite picture of Christ's crucifixion. I need to answer that. Uh, who is Rizpah? What is she representing here? What is? Why didn't Michael show up? Michael has five hangs. She's not out there fighting off birds and beasts. Where did she go? Michael has five sons hanged. Rizba just two. And Michael is not mentioned again. That's very important, by the way. When the Bible doesn't mention somebody after they have a prominent reason for being there, that's important. Rizpah, however, is in greatly honored. What she did is greatly honored by David and in Scripture. Rizpah is fighting. She's fighting off birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. That's what she's doing. She's protecting the bones. She knows to protect the bones so that they can be buried. She knows what she's doing and why she's doing it. What's the obvious question? How does she know? Who told her? How did she know? I've got to go out there and fight off these birds and these beasts. I've got to protect these bones. Because they've got to be gathered with Saul and Jonathan and they have to be buried together. And then the famine will end. How does she know that? Who told her? Who could have possibly told her? The Gibeonites. What's the obvious question? Why would the Gibeonites tell the people who... Tried to destroy them. Anything. Why not just let God clean them up? Famine them all down. Why interfere? The Gibeonites love the nation of Israel. Why? They do. They understand the Messiah. Salvation for all Gentiles will come through the Jewish nation. They also know that God loves the Jews. So they love the Jews. They want to be like God. They also know, however, that uh, a curse must be lifted by a sacrifice. And they taught Rizpah what to do. This understanding came from the Gibeonites. Only the Gibeonites knew these things. Only the Gibeonites knew what was necessary to end the famine and why it was necessary and how it must be done. And then one of the two women, only Rizpah, fights and who's she fighting? She's fighting the birds of the air. And, and all you have to do to figure out who the birds of the air is, is to go to the New Testament and find the complement, which is in Matthew 13.32, also Matthew 13.4. And you can find who the birds of the air are. The birds of the air are demonic. They are fallen sat satanic angels poised to attack. It is the sower and the birds come down and grab the seed. It is the birds that nest in the mutated mustard tree. That's, by the way, a prophecy of the end of the age as well. The church will become a mutated mustard tree. Huge. Mustards are, are bushes small. This will be a huge mutated tree. The church will be filled with demonic, fallen, satanic angels picking off the seed. And so it is obvious that if the birds of the air are a demonic reference, a spiritual reference, then the beasts of the earth, the beasts of the field, logically are who? Humans. So I have satanic evil and I have human evil. So Rizpah is fighting evil. What's the obvious question now? What's the evil trying to do? What's the point of the evil? What is the evil attempting here? Again, let me say this. I don't say it enough. This is a literal event that actually happened. There actually is a Rizpah. Notice I said is. There actually is a Rizpah. There actually is a David. There actually is a Saul. There actually is seven hanged. This actually happened. These are real people doing and saying these very things. And what has God done to them? He has put them in His Word to do what? 
to teach you a great truth. Great truths. Teach me. So Rizpah fought off real birds and real beasts who came for the bones and the bodies. That's the first thing that happens in a crucifixion, isn't it? The first thing that happens is the vultures, the birds of prey, come down and take the eyes off. The next thing that happens is the extremities are ripped off by the beasts. That's a crucifixion. Did that happen to Christ? No. Why not? And birds knew better. They knew who he was. His. Never refer to Christ in the past tense. That's why he calls himself the I Am, because he is always in the present tense. I can't say that enough. Especially if I have visitors. You do not have a present. You have a past. You have a future. You are not an I am. He is the only I am. That is why he calls himself that. That is why Christ over and over and over and over and over again called himself the I am. So that you would pick that up and go back to Exodus where Moses is standing in front of the bush and he asks God his name and God says, I am. That is why when he's in Gethsemane, he asks them, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus, he says, I am. And what do they do? Flung to the ground. Anyway, what is the evil attempting? The question becomes on the deeper level, what is this struggle? Matthew 13 has clues. Jude 9 has clues. Genesis 15 seems to be the most revelatory. Abraham is also fighting off birds in Genesis 15:11, And that raises the great mystery of the two birds of Genesis 15:10, which aren't the ones he's fighting off. He's fighting off predatory birds. And those two birds bring us... Something that I've covered in great length, that's radical dualism and substance dualism, interactive dualism, death and resurrection. First, of course, it's of Christ in Genesis 15. Two witnesses, law, grace, the ceremony of the healed leper, all of that is in Genesis 15. Well, but with the two birds that are undivided. And I won't do that again, but I just mention it because of the Internet people. They want to know when I've covered those topics, and so I did it. That is for you, send donuts. Okay. A fight occurs, and Rizbah is fighting these birds and these beasts, which must represent someone. Who is she representing? We know they're representing evil. Is she representing the same as Abraham? Who also fights off evil? And who is it that fights off the evil that is above and the evil that is on the earth? Who is that? Who do they represent? Gonna have to skip a couple of pages. How come? No, I don't. John's not back yet. Thank you, Anna, for ending the sermon. (laughs) Again, most commentators see personal or individual mortification here. What that means is our battle within ourselves, fighting off our own lusts, our sins, the spiritual battle that is within ourselves. You know, there is no spiritual battle until you're saved. You have no spiritual battle until you have said, I need blood, I need flesh, I believe that you are who you say you are. John says specifically, you must believe I am. You must believe he is God himself in the flesh or you will perish. So those who do that end up immediately in a battle. And that's what most people believe is happening here. They believe this is a battle individually of bringing our sins before God Uh, After we confess and admit them, hang them before him, if you will. That's what they believe. So they see the seven hanged as unconfessed past sin that is finally brought to God and that has caused a famine in our spiritual lives and must be presented to God and admitted in order to get his blessing, which is his relationships or his relationship with us. And then the birds of the air would be demonic principalities who have a system that tempts us into sinful lives, and the beasts would be human influence that lead us to waste our lives. By the way, you're not unsaved because you have sin. You might be worthless, but you're not unsaved. Wood, hay, stubble, yeah, your life may burn completely up. Here's where I'm bringing back Dirk Fast.
Dirk Fast is an honored man. I know it. When he walked into that throne room, God said, you are an honored man. For who, what he said to people, you don't even know. What he worried about, who he worried about. He might have been the only saved person in Talkeetna. I know there's less than ten of them. He certainly was the only Republican. He didn't miss a chance. And because of that, he will be honored. He didn't do it out where anybody saw him. He did it quietly and carefully and softly. I'm not trying to make him perfect. I'm telling you that he is honored. Now he's perfect. And who's he worrying about? Everyone he loves. How many is that? That's a whole town. Half of, half of Spinard. So you could have a wasted life. And I see why that interpretation is quite popular. It's applicable. Everybody wants to do applicable sermons. Nobody wants to do what I do. I don't blame them. I have to bribe you with how many pizzas we got, John? Seven? How many pizzas? Please say seven. It'll fit in with the sermon. Eight. I could say. Why weren't there eights hanged? But it doesn't explain, and I don't disagree that that interpretation is, is, is there. I would let you conclude and be happy for you, but I don't, and I know it's popular, but it doesn't explain David gathering the bones or David ordering, commanding the bones to be buried together. Clearly, David is the shepherd king. He is the slayer of Goliath. He took the head of Goliath back to Golgotha. That's why it's called Golgotha. That is the place of Goliath's skull. And he buried it exactly where Christ crucified. Christ made sure he's God. He knew where that head was. And he put his cross on top of Golgotha, or the head of the place of Goliath's head. The place of Goliath's skull, if you will. That's what he did, because he's God. He's in total control of his crucifixion. He has to be, or he's not God. Certainly, the gathering and the burying of the bones is an act of Christ. It is a redemptive work of Christ. Where is the New Testament compliment then? How is David gathering these bones an act of Christ? How is he Christ here? How does this fit in with circumcision? Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4. How does that all fit together? which is the just shall live by faith, or you are saved by grace. You are saved by mercy, not a work of your hands. You cannot save anything. Certainly cannot save yourself, and you cannot save anyone else. You will live by gift, by mercy, by grace. That is how it all fits together. Next week, we shall endeavor to figure it out. Football. Let's rise and be dismissed.